So a funny thing happens when uh, you ask God to be at work in your life, when you ask God to do the work of transformation and sanctification in you, when you begin to uh, not just read scripture, but you know, you really want it to mean something to, to take hold of you. And, and so when, when you offer yourself to God in that way, God's going to provide plenty of opportunities for you to practice uh, that process of, of being sanctified and, and letting God's word transform you. So uh, the last, you know, this week we're talking about uh, practicing extreme grace in, in our series, Practice Makes Perfect. And I realized that over the last several months, I've had plenty of opportunities to practice extreme grace. Th- thanks be to God for those opportunities, right? Uh, you know, um, we, one of those ways is that I've been trying to schedule a follow-up appointment uh, with a doctor. It's not uh, urgent. It's not uh, serious, but it's just a follow-up appointment. And their first opening is October. <clears throat> and, and so that's a little frustrating for me. Uh, I, in the past couple of months, a couple of my brothers and sisters in Christ um, have said unkind things about me and some untrue things about me, which is also fine if, if you don't like me. That's okay. I, 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 it's okay for people not to like me. But when you post it in public settings, um, that's a little hurtful, right? You know what that's like when people say mean things about you or to you or things that are untrue. Um, and just this week, I've, I've been in conversation with some people coming to my house to make some repairs on some work that began last August. And I've been in conversation with them since February uh, about how things apparently haven't been done correctly from the beginning. And so uh, Friday, finally, the repair guys are supposed to come and fix things and make me happy. And so uh, I'm sitting there waiting. We've, we've gotten everything ready for them to come, and we're just waiting so they can come and we can leave. And there's a knock on the door, and I go to the door thinking, oh, thank goodness they're here. And it's not them. It's two really lovely ladies who say to me, good morning. We would like to share some scripture with you today <clears throat> about how to have a happier home. I said, well, I'm a pastor. We're good right? It's okay. We don't have to have this conversation. And what I really wanted to say was, um, I will be much happier in my home if these repairs would just be complete, right? But I knew I couldn't say that without uh, sarcasm and snark. And so instead, I just said, hey, you know, we're good. We're a very happy home and bless you to go on your way, right? And the repair guys showed up. Someone at, after 9.30 said, maybe it was God's grace that they showed up so that your angst was uh, already out the door uh, before the repair guys actually showed up. Uh, practicing this extreme grace, having these opportunities to do it. You know, over the last couple months as I've had these opportunities, uh, part of me, I just kind of want to shake my fists at God and say, what is this about? And I can envision God's face and shrug of a shoulder to say, "Ah, well, I thought you said you wanted to be more like Jesus. Well, yeah, but not that much more like Jesus, right? I've also realized in the last week, even though I've had opportunities to extend and practice extreme grace, I have received extreme grace extended to me by family, by friends, by uh, fellow drivers on 183, right? That, that there is this give and take in our world. 
And that to practice extreme grace is to choose love over fear and hatred. It is to choose forgiveness over revenge. It is to choose kindness over a mean and critical spirit. It is to choose generosity over withholding. It is to choose God's will and God's interest over my own will and my own interests. And that's just hard. And honestly, in the midst of this broken world, it seems a little ridiculous that that's what God asked me to do. And yet, when we consider that we are here, you and I are here in this space and on this journey that we're on, we're here only because God has extended and practiced extreme grace to us. That God's love for us We don't have to earn it, we can't earn it, we don't deserve it, and yet God gifts it to us. Extreme grace, no strings attached. That's where the practice of extreme grace has to start for it to become a reality in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word to us today. Let it take hold of us and transform us that we wouldn't be the same. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I remind you, the series we're in called Practice Makes Perfect, that it's a process of being made perfect in love. Perfect, that the Greek word there is teleos. It doesn't mean perfectionism. It doesn't mean we get it all right. It means that we're made whole and mature. That's what that word means means practice makes perfect. Now, to practice implies a process. So thinking about praying and giving and loving are not the same thing as actually praying and giving and loving. So the practicing requires our participation. The other thing to remember is that we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole picture. There's great uh, nuggets of of wisdom within the Sermon on the Mount, and even as a culture, we pull things out of that and and use them as a way to relate to one another. But Jesus is painting a big picture for those who are listening and for us of what the kingdom of God looks like different from the kingdom of the world. Jesus is, is painting a picture of the kingdom of God that is not quite yet here, and yet is becoming our reality as those of us who follow Christ and who are called by God are living into that space. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is reminding the people of Israel, the Jewish people, many of whom are the ones hearing him, he's reminding them to be Israel, to be Israel, the people that God has chosen the people that God has blessed to be a blessing, the people that God has set apart and called to be holy, the people that God has called to be a light to the nations, to be different from the world around them. Jesus is reminding them, be who you are, reminds us the same. In this broken world, you belong to the kingdom of God. Be the beloved children of God. And live out what this means. Live into who you are out of who you already are as my beloved children. 
We continue in Matthew's Gospel. We're at the end of chapter 5 this week. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth that originally was intended to put restrictions or limitations on retaliation. So it, it was meant to, to be something that keeps us from going overboard in seeking justice on our own or in demanding what we believe is ours or seeking um, that, that restitution uh, that usually when we're in a reactive place, someone has hurt us, we go above and beyond to get back either at that person or get back for ourselves. And, and the original intent was to put a limit on that, to say, yes, there is action here, but, but we, we have a limit as to what that action is going to be. We tend to take that out of context a lot and, and use it to our own good when really it was for the benefit of the whole. To uh, turn the other cheek and to go the second mile and to give your cloak and, and to give to those who ask you. Also, it's not about not having appropriate boundaries. It's not about subjecting yourself to someone else's abuse. It's, it's living from a, a different point, a different reference for power and worth. It's living from who you are as God's beloved children. Understanding that what other people say or do doesn't define who you are. And so to turn the other cheek, to give your cloak, to, to uh, go the extra mile, is diffusing some of, of the power that they have and owning that, that your power, your worth, is in who you are, not in what they say or what they do. There's a great, uh, it's a movie, a musical, it's also, uh, it comes from a novel called Les Miserables. Some of you have seen it, some of you have read it. Uh, it's, it's been a, a classic, a 19th century novel set in France. Um, and the main character in this book, in this story, is a man named Jean Valjean. And in this story of love and mercy and redemption and extreme grace. And Jean Valjean is a convict, he's a thief who stole bread to feed his family and was caught and, and sent to a work camp. He'd spent 19 years doing hard labor to pay for stealing the bread. And he's been released, and now he's on parole. He's been given his papers to go be on parole in a different town, and he's uh, out, and he's looking for food and shelter. He has nothing. And he finds himself at the bishop's residence, and the bishop invites him in, and feeds him a warm meal and gives him a place to sleep that night. 
And overnight, Jean Valjean wakes up and uh, goes downstairs and, and steals the silver, the silverware that they had used at dinner. He, he steals that. He packs it up. And the bishop walks in on him as he is stealing the silver. And Jean Valjean strikes the bishop and knocks him down, and he takes off. Jean Valjean, the criminal, is returned the next day. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, thank and... God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Jean Valjean spends the rest of his life having received that extreme grace, extending it to others. Imperfectly as he does, it's always his point of reference for how he lives the rest of his life, loving others, even his enemies. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't forget, don't ever forget that in Christ we are a new creation. In Christ, we have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and with us and for us. In Christ, we are still in this broken world, but we're not of this broken world. In Christ, in Christ, we are God's beloved children. We are heirs of the kingdom. All that Jesus talks about, the kingdom of God, is ours we're heirs of the kingdom. That's what we inherit. So we have nothing to lose. Nothing to lose in extending grace to others because by the extreme grace of God that we have received, we have all that we need.
We literally have nothing to lose. It's all ours already. Nothing to lose in extending grace to one another, to our enemies, to the world. Don't forget, don't ever forget that you belong to God. We've been set free from fear and from hatred, set free to live as ones who belong to God. Why, why is it so hard for us then? Because I'm sure it's not hard just for me. I, I suspect some of you, uh, it's hard for you too. Why? For a couple of reasons, I think. One, we live in this tension of being in the world, but not of the world. We live in, in the tension of, of our human nature that is driven by pride and ego and self-preservation. The tension of that and, and belonging to God who gives us everything that we need, in whom our identity is found. We live in the tension of this world that, that says you have to look out for yourself. You have to earn your way. You have to defend your position. You have to accumulate all you can. And we, we're blinded by that, and we begin to believe that that's our reality, when actually our reality is the kingdom of God. I think sometimes it's hard for us because we're not sure or we forget that that extreme grace of God, that love of God, is actually for us. We can almost believe that it's for the person sitting next to us. But we have a hard time believing that it's really for us. That God would love us with no strings attached. That God wouldn't want something or demand something from us in return. We have a hard time loving ourselves, being kind to ourselves, forgiving ourselves. No wonder we have a hard time loving others and being kind to others and forgiving others. I think we also struggle with this because sometimes, maybe a lot of the times, we we assign motive to other people's behavior toward us. When other people wrong us or mistreat us or are mean to us, we, we tend to think that they're doing so maliciously, that they're intentionally hurting us. When the truth is, most of the time, what, they're completely unaware of us. And their behavior is out of their own pain, out of their own struggle. Most of the time, people cutting you off on 183, they don't even know who you are. They're not intentionally making you mad or, or, or cutting you off. They're in their own world. But what do we do? We yell at them, right? Or uh, something worse than that, right? We tend to assign motive to other people's behavior when in truth, it's mostly out of their own pain and struggle, that we experience them. And when we react in kind, when we retaliate or when we seek revenge or when we decide that we're going to hate them, then we only perpetuate the harsh reality of our broken world, this endless loop of hurt people hurting other people. And practicing extreme grace is what breaks that loop. It's what interrupts that cycle. 
Practicing extreme grace allows for healing. It restores hope. It embodies the kingdom of God in which people who know that they are loved freely love one another. Even our enemies. Even our enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Enemy the, the root of that word, in Latin, it means bad friend. When we pray for our enemies, they're no longer our enemies. When we pray for our enemies, when we love them, when we pray for those who persecute us, it's not about changing them. It's not about getting them to do something different. It's because we've been changed. I saw on Facebook this week, maybe you saw it too, a, a posting about a lady who was driving to work and in front of her uh, was a car and there was a sign in the car that said, um, learning stick, sorry for delays, right? So if you've ever driven a stick shift and someone's behind you, you know exactly what that feels like, right? And she said she was infinitely patient and that this person actually was doing a great job. And later she thought, if I hadn't seen the sign, would I have been so patient? Would I have been so kind? And she said, honestly, no. When we walk around in this world, we're not wearing signs on our backs for people to see that say, going through a divorce, just diagnosed with cancer, child is failing school, my parents are dying, I've lost my job, I'm depressed. We don't wear those signs on our back for people to see. And so we don't tend to see them in other people. And yet we're constantly in relationship with one another, and we all have a sign. What would it look like if we chose love and kindness and mercy and patience? even without knowing what someone's going through? What would it look like if we just extended extreme grace, love, whoever it is God puts on our path? I'm telling you, it might be your spouse. It might be your child. It might be your parents. It might be your coworker. It might be the person sitting next to you. It might be a friend. It might be a stranger on the street. It might be the doctor's office or the repair people. Or someone who says mean things about you. What would it look like if you chose to practice extreme grace regardless of what they do with it? This is about us remembering who we are. Beloved children of God, heirs of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in which extreme grace is the norm not the exception. What would the world look like if you and I, just you and I in this room, what would the world look like if we believed who we are, if we lived out of that place of love and simply extended it to whoever God puts in front of us? Expect 
it would look a lot more like the kingdom of God than it does right now. Let the people say amen. I want to invite those who are